Okay. Today is July 8th, 2009. This is Fidencio Marbella with Melrose Park Public Library in Illinois. Also present are Heidi Beasley, reference librarian here at Melrose Park, and Mr. John Masasi. John is a member of our library board and is a World War II veteran. Today we will be speaking with Mr. Angelo Provenzano. Angelo was born here in Melrose Park on February 29, 1920. He served in the United States Army from 1942 through 1946, and the highest rank he achieved was as a staff sergeant. Right. Uh, okay. This interview is being conducted for the Veterans History Project at the Library of Congress. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Angelo, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about your family when you were growing up here in Melrose Park? How many siblings you have and about your parents? Well, I was born and raised in Melrose Park. My parents came from Calabria, Italy. Okay. They settled in Melrose Park and had nine children, three boys and six girls. Two of us boys went in the World War II, and my younger brother went into Korea. Now, my father had leukemia, and he died in his early 50s. And uh, my older sisters, two older sisters, worked, worked hard to keep the family together and that. And uh, in Melrose Park, where I grew up, I went to Melrose Park Grammar School, went to Proviso East Township High School, and uh, we played in all the, I participated in all the different sports in Morrow's Park. For a while, Judge Sinise had a boxing team, and I was on the boxing team there. And uh, I got to tell you about an incident in the Army with the boxing. But uh, <clears throat> we... Uh, I played football with the Melrose Park Gales, and we had our own little club. We call it the Mars, which was in Melrose Park, and Alex Serpico's had one of those old-fashioned barns with the hayloft on top, and that was our clubhouse. And uh, we used to go fishing at the creek on North Avenue in Melrose Park. There's a creek runs across there. Where it says Andy Frenzel. Oh, near uh, 50th Avenue? Yes, right. Okay. So we used to go fishing there. First, we'd stop on 18th and Division. There were two food stores there. And uh, we'd stop in and we got a nickel's worth of liver. For a nickel, you get a big piece of liver. And we'd ask them for some store string. And we tied a string around the liver. Then we'd go to the creek and we'd throw that liver in there. And the crabs would, would grab it. And as they grabbed it, we would just drag it slowly in. And when they got near the shore, we would grab them. And uh, that wasn't the half of it. Actually, when we caught the crabs, there was a little dump where people were throwing cans and everything there. We got one of those old rusty cans. And we would uh, boil the water in there, put the crabs in there to pour things, throw them in their lives. And we'd sit down and short lunch. We'd eat those crabs. We also had a fishing hole. Schultz's Farm, they called it over there. And uh, it was a, a little watering hole for his cattle and his horses that he had. And we would go swimming there. At that time, that was Depression time. 
we couldn't afford swimming suits, so we would naturally just jump in there, and nobody could see us from North Avenue because few trees around and everything. So we had our own uh, swimming hole there. We also used to go to the Slough, which is on Chicago Avenue, and uh, were the churches there. Chicago Avenue and First Avenue, between First Avenue and Thatcher. The Trailside Museum is right there. So we used to we used to go over there and we'd bring our snow shovels with us and clean the snow off the slough there. That uh, was water that would run in from the Des Plaines River. We'd clean that off. We'd play hockey there. And also the Trailside Museum being there, we'd make the trip. We'd go to Amlings first, Amlings Flowerland. Lift up one of those hay, hay lofts there, and a uh, bundle of hay, and there'd be all little mice in there. And we used to catch them by the buckets. We'd bring a bucket and just scoop them up with a bucket. And then we'd take them to the Trailside Museum, and they let us feed the snakes with them. And it's amazing. That snake maybe would be about a half inch in diameter, his body. And as he took that mouse and you would see his body just to, to picture the mouse is going through there you know it was really something and then we also all our fathers used to make wine then so we used to get the barrel staves and we'd uh, break uh, break the barrel and get the staves and we'd tie them on our on our shoes and we'd go skiing by the slough there. We'd go down because there was a slope from the Trailside Museum there, and we'd put that on there, and that's how we learned how to ski and stuff there. So we had quite a quite a time. I remember in town there, uh, our friends on that, like uh, Mikey Celestino, God bless his soul, he was in the Army. He was a World War II veteran too. He just passed away about four years ago. And his mother used to make root beer. And uh, that homemade root beer was so good. And Mikey would leave the window open. And then his kids would go in there. And then Mikey, the one that owned his mother, was made the root beer. We'd go over stealing root beer right from his mother. <laughs> and she knew it. But his mother, was she was a queen out there. She knew we were doing that, you know, and I think she purposely, she loved it because she knew we loved the rug bear, you know. But uh, we had quite a time there and brought up with a big family. It was always nice during the Depression time that you got uh, nine in the family between the brothers and sisters and plus my mom and dad, and uh, which made 11. And uh, it was nice. We'd have a big basement there, and a lot of the kids would come over and stuff, and we would uh, enjoy things just by listening to the radio and that. Jack Benny was very popular then, and I remember we used to get a big kick out of Jack Benny. And we had an old patroller on there that you'd wind up and uh, play records and that. And uh, my dad had some battalion records, and... It was a lot of fun growing up with a big family and and all the kids and stuff in the neighborhood. We were all in that depression area. 
So we all were used to getting Afri dried apricots and dried prunes and stuff. So uh, we all uh, enjoyed life as best we could under the conditions. We'd find an old can to play kick the can. We'd play hockey with the can. We'd get some of those carnation milk cans and put them on our shoes, kick them in, and have call them horseshoes and stuff. We'd make our own stilts. And... Uh, We'd get our stilts and uh, we'd have to get on it. We'd see how high we could make them. Sometimes we'd have to climb on the fence to get on them. But we learned how to walk on those stilts and that. It was, it was fun. We always made fun with what we had. We made our own bow and arrows. We would go to the creek there. Those willow trees made beautiful bows. And we'd tie a string on them and make some arrows up and shoot them and stuff and uh, so we managed like I say with the small things that we had we went a long ways with them and I'd say that most of us guys all turned out to be good kids and uh, in fact when we were drafted to go into the army we weren't figuring out a way how to get out of the army we were worried sick about if we were become a 4F at that time, they had 1A and 4F. If you're 1A, they put you in the Army. If you're 4F, they send you home. You weren't fit for the Army. So we were going, wow, what if we're 4F? What are we going to tell the people? And uh, anyway, fortunately, we were all 1A, so we were all very happy. And uh, oh, there's a lot more things to, to say on that, but uh, what's your next question? Okay. Okay, um, can you tell us where you were when you heard about Pearl Harbor? When I heard about Pearl Harbor, yes, I was working for Charles Bruning Company. They make everything for the engineer and draftsman. And uh, that's, that's when I heard about it. And uh, we couldn't figure out why they did something like that because the Japanese were talking to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was our president. Uh, and then they went back to Japan. The first thing you know, they bombed Pearl Harbor. So we were very, very disappointed and wondering, well, what's going to come off next? So we knew that there was going to be a war. I mean, the United States wasn't going to sit back and just take it. And that's when I first started Pearl Harbor. So you were drafted into the Army in December of 1942. Um, can you tell us what your family felt when uh, they found out you had, you had been drafted? Mm, yes, my family, they all were very sad about it because my father was very ill then. He had leukemia. And the uh, doctor said he didn't have much more time to live. And... Uh, so they, he tried, the doctor tried to get a deferment for me, but uh, they got me about a two-month deferment, and then they said I had to go in, and uh, I went. So naturally, the family felt very, they were all worked up about it. You know, here I'm the, the big brother, and uh, dad's going to be gone. So... Uh, then when I went in, 
they had what they call Class E allotment. And I told them if I got drafted, I wanted to get that Class E allotment because my father was on his deathbed and uh, they had no way. My mother needed the money to take care of the kids. So that allotment was, I think, took part of my salary and uh, the government put in some. It wasn't too much, but as my rank went up in the Army, started off as a private, naturally, and as my rank went up, they kept uh, building the, putting a little more money into the uh, pension that my mother used to get. That was, that was about it with that. Okay. Now, was your family able to see you off when you had to leave Melrose Park to join the Army? Uh, well, not really. I mean, it was hard for them to, you know, to go there. And we went in, I forget how many of us were here, but there were quite a group from Melrose Park that went in together into the Army. And, uh. So we more or less had assembled at a certain point, and then they took us to uh, Camp Grant in Rockford. So, uh, no, there was really no way where they could have, uh, it was hard for them to get around. None of them were driving. And my dad, like I say, he couldn't, he couldn't get around any place. And uh, so when we went in, we, more or less went in all together, a bunch of guys from Melrose Park. And fortunately, they're all people I knew, but only one of them went with me for basic training, Leo Pernice. You probably know his wife. Yes. And uh, Leo Pernice and I were in the same uh, hutmet in uh, Camp Robinson, Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, Leo and I, we were in six-man hutmet, so there was Leo and I and four other soldiers in one hutmet there. So we all, you're all in it for the same purpose, so we all got along very good together and stuff. And uh, we used to have inspections and everything, and one of the fellows that was in with us, he was a little slow and everything, so we tried to help him as much as we could. You know, we all worked together. And when they checked your hutment, if one of them was, uh, if one of them didn't have their foot locked or ranged right or anything, everybody would get, it would fall on all of us. So we had to take care of each other. So we would all kind of work in, work in together. Oh, you had to have your shoes shined. You had to be laced at the end of the bed. You had to have your clothes hanging up, uh, and they had to be buttoned, and and we used to say, "Boy, that's chicken shit." But uh, <laughs> pardon the language, but uh, really, it was discipline. And uh, without discipline, and without our Lord and hope and faith and uh, prayer, I mean, you couldn't have a decent army. And but discipline was very important in the army. And I guess that's the reason they did that, to discipline you. Because one undisciplined soldier can ruin the whole battalion. And uh, so all those things they did, they were for our own good. But Leo and I were in together, and I knew Leo Pernice. 
because we grew up together in town. And uh, so it was nice to have a friend with you, that a real buddy that you knew from day one, you know. And uh, then from there, but then I went into the European theater, and Leo went a different way. He went to the Pacific, and so that was that was about the size of it with Leo. That's when I left him, and then I didn't see him until we all got back to stateside. And fortunately, he and I did get back safe and sound, you know. What other kind of things did they teach you at the Camp Robinson? Camp Robinson, Arkansas? How to shoot different weapons, M1s, carbines, bazooka, machine guns, uh, you name it. I mean, you got to learn learn everything and how to take them apart blindfolded in the dark I mean because that was your that was your best friend and you better know how to take care of it if your gun was out of shape you were in bad shape you wouldn't last you wouldn't last long so it was your life and it was taught you to be kill or be killed when you go in there and make sure you dig foxholes and everything, and that's, they taught us how to dig foxholes there. And if you ever were in Little Rock, Arkansas, digging a foxhole in Little Rock, Arkansas, is like me going out on the street there and trying to dig a hole in that street there <laughs> with a little shovel about two feet long. It was all rock. It was all rock. They gave it the right name, Little Rock, Arkansas. But they were pretty big rocks. But I mentioned something about, you got any water here? I mentioned something about uh, boxing. Judsonese, at that time they had uh, judges in town there. And uh, he was with the with the city of Melrose Park. He was a magistrate uh, and a judge, yeah. And... Uh, so he had us kids, he had a regular club, and uh, he called it the Boys Club, and we used to go and we boxed. But when I got into the Army, now Leo Pernice, he knew that we were boxing over there and stuff and that, you know. So they called me Pro. For short, they all called me Pro. And uh, so he says, they needed somebody to challenge the boxing champion of the camp, Robinson, Arkansas. So they couldn't get anybody to challenge him. So Leo Pernice says, hey, pro, you can fight him. I weighed about 135 pounds soaking wet. This guy was about 255 pounds. And uh, there's no way am I going to fight him. Ah, come on, come on, you're going to fight him. No way. Well, anyway, he got wind of it, the champion. He got wind of it. So he came up to me and he says, you know, he says, uh, I understand that you're going you're gonna to challenge me. You want to fight me? Oh, excuse me one minute. Thank you. <clears throat> he says, I understand you're going to challenge me. 
to fight me. I said, no way. I said, not me. I just talked to the guys that are pushing me on you, but not me. He said, I'll tell you something. They always expect a boxing match. All the top brass is going to be here. Generals, colonels, you name it. They're all going to be here. And they expect a little boxing match. He says, so if I don't get a challenger, you're it. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, ah, come on. He said, I know I can kill you, he says. He looked at me, you know, he's looking down at me, and I'm looking up at him. He says, you know, I could kill you, he says, but we're just going to fool around. We'll make a little show out of it. He says, I'm going to be jabbing like this and got my arm out, and you're going to be swinging. You can't even reach me, he says, you know. He said, we'll put on a little show. He says, you know how to put on a show? I said, yeah, I can do that, I says, you know. So anyway, the day comes for boxing. So uh, I get in a ring. And I'm just kind of, you know, looking around and stuff. And everybody's looking at little guy, going to fight that big guy. So anyway, so the first round comes up. So I'm going around him. And these guys got me psyched in. All the guys from my outfit got me psyched in that I could beat this guy. Oh. <laughs> so now I'm getting a little cocky. I... Uh, I'm seeing it together. They said, he's slow, you're fast. So anyway, so I did. I kind of run around him, and I give him a little punch on the side. By the time he turns around, and run around the other side. I give him another little punch there. And then I could see I'm kind of aggravating him. <laughs> so anyway, the end of round, the end of round one, I really kind of made a fool out of him, you know, in that, in that round one there. So the bell rings. And uh, that was the end of round one. So we go and sit in your corner. So I take the stool and I kick it out of the way. Get it out of there. I don't want to sit down. And uh, they got the water and stuff there. And I'm kicking the bucket of water away. And I'm going to the center of the ring. Come on, come on. I'm going to the center of the ring. And uh, everybody out there was thinking, this kid's going to get killed. So... I'm going in there, and I go up, come on, come on. And the referee's going, get back to your corner, get back to your corner, wait for the bell. So anyway, the bell rings. So I could see the look in his eyes. Well, I'll tell you, if looks could kill, I would have been dead. And I could see the looks in his eyes. I'm looking at him here like this, and I'm going right for him. As soon as I get to my sidestep, I jump over the ropes. <laughs> And I run out of the place. Everybody's on it. Come back. Come back. I said, that's it. Well, I saw I saw the champ the next day. And he told me, it's a good thing you jumped out of that ring. He said, I would have killed you. He said, you made a fool out of me. But anyway, that was a little experience I had there, which was kind of fun, you know. And... Uh, it was all in fun, and they said that that was the best, a lot of the top brass that were there at other times, they said that's the best fight they ever saw. <laughs> so anyway, we tried to have a little fun in between everything else, you know, but you're so, you're so darn busy when you get drafted into the Army that for the first, uh, when you're in the Army, 
first three, four months in there, it doesn't even give you a chance to think about home. I mean, they keep you busy. And I think that's their idea, to keep you busy and keep you going and, and still not as bad as Hitler, but uh, and still you got to live, you kill or be killed. You know, you're going in there and you got to really be, they really teach you that you got to learn and listen and you'll get along. You know, that's the way it worked out. So how long were you at uh, Camp Robinson? Camp Robinson, basically, was it about three months, something like that. And where did uh, the Army send you after uh, Camp Robinson? Oh, after that, I went to uh, Leesville, Louisiana. And uh, actually, it was, uh, uh, let's see, yeah, it was right, yeah, right after, I went to Louisiana. And uh, when we went there, they were, uh, it was training again, different training and marching and uh different bivouacs and uh, going around with your full field pack and uh, and all oh, raincoats on the belt and all the stuff and your rifles and everything, you know, and just keep uh, uh, kept training over there. I guess they were getting us ready for what was going to be the big war, you know. And uh, what was that question again? What? Oh. You were, yeah, and uh, that was about it. Well, when I was in Louisville, Louisville, Louisiana, they had they were looking for flying cadets. Now they wanted people. They wanted guys for the air for the Air Corps to fly to fighter planes. So I went to uh, De Ritter Air Base in uh, Louisiana there and uh, they said we'll let you know we'll let you know if we've been accepted or anything you know they said you passed everything everything seems to be fine and we'll get in touch with you but then it wasn't long after that we were shipping out and the first thing this was even after I got wounded the colonel come up to me and he says, Sergeant Provenzano, he says, you're going to, you have to go to DeRitter, Louisiana. You've been chosen for the flying cadets. And I says, I have. He says, but how in the hell am I going to get you there? <laughs> he says, damn it, he says, these army papers, when they write something down, you have to follow through with them. He says, how am I going to get you there? He says, can you swim across the channel and swim across the ocean? <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, oh, it looks like I'm stuck here, huh? He says, I think so, he says, you know. But maybe things worked out for the best. They were looking for pilots. And I don't think I would have much flying. But uh, they gave me a little training over here when I, with the test and everything else and that. And, uh, but I think there wouldn't have been too much more training that they would have given me. And I think they would have put me on a P-47 or a P-38 Lightning and sent me and said, go fight Johnny Zero out there in Japan. So uh, the way things worked out, I was with the outfit there. And uh, 
that's that's what happened there. But actually, from Louisiana, we went to uh, New Jersey then, Camp Kilmer, New Jersey. And that's when we got on the uh, Queen Mary big ship there. And uh, we got on the Queen Mary, and that took us... Uh, well, we landed in Glasgow, Scotland first. But we were only there a short time. After Glasgow, Scotland, they took us into England. And in England there, uh, that's where we started getting more training and stuff. And a lot of marching and hiking and stuff. And they were getting, getting us prepared and putting us in a marshalling area, getting ready to make the invasion in the in the France. So that would have been early 1944? Ah, God, the dates, that yeah, would have been around in that time, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your sea voyage on the Queen Mary? There must have been thousands of soldiers on that ship. There were. It was converted into a troop ship. The Queen Mary was really a beautiful luxury liner, but they converted into a troop ship. We had bunks somewhere four, five, six, seven high, and uh, and it was all English personnel. The sailors were all English. So first thing, the first message I remember getting on there was, "Your attention, please. Your attention, please. You're on the Queen Mary, and we're going to head for England." We'll be landing in Glasgow, Scotland for a short while. Then our destination will be England. And we want to tell you that you only get two meals a day on this ship. Two meals a day, so you better learn to eat the meals. Because if you don't eat the meals, you're going to be on an empty stomach, and you're going to be dry heaving all the way in. And uh, so you better eat the food. We will be serving breakfast in about a half hour, and we will announce which tiers will go first, etc., etc. So we go to breakfast. So we're talking. We say, "Well, we have to. We have to. Uh, we have to eat." So I hope they got a decent breakfast. Now for breakfast, they had. Mutton stew. Mutton stew for breakfast. And we looked at each other and said, well, I guess we got to eat it. Because the, the next meal is a long ways away. Two meals. And if you have to eat well, anyway, we ate the mutton stew. But needless to say, before we could even think of digesting that mutton stew, we were all overboard. Ah! <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that was, that was it. And then we were all crowded in there, you know, and you could hardly move around. And you'd want to go to, if you're, I happen to be on, I think, the third, the third bunk up. But uh, as the ones that are higher above, they're stepping all over you to get that air bunk. And uh, it was quite a, quite a mess. But uh, now being the Queen Mary is a pretty big ship. So uh, we uh, 
we're right, right, let's see, we were going along, and usually they have submarine es escorts. But for the Queen Mary, they couldn't have submarine escorts because uh, Queen Mary was too big a ship and, uh, and it had to run a zigzag course. So the Queen Mary actually were zigging and zagging and, you know, and you got empty stomach and stuff, you're zigging and zagging too. And uh, quite a few of us, I'd say about 75% of us got pretty sick going it was only a five-day trip. Usually, I felt sorry for these fellas that went to the Pacific on these banana boats. It took them weeks sometimes to get there, but uh, just five, five, six days on the Queen Mary was enough. Okay. So you were in England uh, right before the invasion. Uh, did you have much contact with the English people? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the English people were all... All very nice, and I'll tell you one thing, they really observed blackout. At night, if us soldiers, if we went into town or something, we'd have to hold hands. If you lost you, the guys you were with, you were lost. You couldn't see in front of you. And especially when they had foggy nights, then it was worse yet. But, uh, yeah, in fact, we talked to the English people, and uh, in fact, the first time we we were staying at a place in Gurney Slade, was a little town, and it had a lake there. There, we found out that that's where we were getting our water from. There was a lake running in there, so fine. But the the water tasted so funny, and we found out they were putting halazone tablets in the water because the water was so polluted. So as we get into England, we're talking to some of the different people there. They said, where are you staying at? I said, well, we're in Gurney Slade. I said, near the lake there. He said, oh, where are you getting your water from? From the lake there. Oh, Suicide Lake. I do mean Suicide Lake. A lot of people committed suicide in that lake. And also all the farmers, all their dead cattle, they threw into the lake there. And uh, they says, uh, and you're drinking that water? And we said, we were drinking that water. <laughs> I don't think we're drinking anymore. But you couldn't help it. The food that they were, that our cooks were preparing and everything, they had to use that water. And if they made coffee, they had to use that water. Uh, no matter what, lemonade, well, everything tasted like halazon. And oh, what a terrible taste. And... Uh, it was really a pleasure to go into the town and fill our canteens up and try to make them last as long as we could to drink some good water. But, uh, yeah, the people all seemed to be nice. They all respected us. And you hear a lot of stories now and that. But uh, uh, I think for a while they say the GIs are overpaid, oversexed, and worst of all, they're over here. <laughs> but uh, really, they, had, they really had, had us to thank for, we really saved them. I mean, you know, if we didn't, the United States didn't get into that war, I think Hitler would have conquered the whole world the way he was going. He was a crazy man, but uh, 
he was he was powerful and they listened to him and uh, so but the the English people and the French people people we had contact with as we're going through the different towns and stuff and uh, English and the French always they all told us that our trouble was going to be with Russia. They said, the Russians, you're going to have problems with Russians. They're no good. We said, they're our allies. You know, the Russians are our allies. They're good, you know. And uh, so anyway, but we took in, uh, but there's another case there. The Nazis, the Germans, I'm going in a string in a different direction now, but uh when we got into these different places, we took some prisoners in. We took some uh, German prisoners in, and then we relieved some uh, from their jail cells, uh, some Russians. And uh, they're like, we are right here, just talking, you know, and they didn't want to fight any more than we did, you know, but uh, you're in it, you know, it's a battle. And, and you're fighting. But uh, the German guys, they were so nice. I mean, I mean, we had them working for us, helping with uh, doing different little chores as we're going through these different towns. You didn't even have to watch them. Well, they surrendered. They came up to us. They wanted to surrender. And then when we took the, uh, the Russians in, that was funny when we took the Russians in because I had some Russian people that lived across the alley from us. We lived on 18, 11, 19, 18, and they lived at 8, 11, 18, 17th Avenue. The Dubrovans. You remember Leo Dubrovan, Johnny? Mm -hmm. And uh, so the Dubrovans, and I remember some of the Russian words that they used, you know. So now we had these Russian prisoners there. So... Uh, I knew they were Russians. I looked at them, you know, all young guys. They looked like Leo Dubrovin, you know. And I said, these, these poor guys, well, they've been in a jail. The Nazis got them and locked them up and stuff. So we relieved them. So the colonel, colonel says, you know, he says, these Russians must be starved. He says, they haven't eaten in days. He says, anybody could speak Russian? And I said, stupid doma babushka the bedas kushi. And uh, the colonel says, thank God we got a Russian here. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. I said, I can't speak Russian. He said, what do you mean? What are you were saying to them? They're all coming up to you. They're all hugging you and everything. <laughs> I said, well, all I know. I said, well, I know a couple other words. Skade, Dixon, Dakushi. I mean, hurry up. Come on. Yeah, eat. So... <laughs> He said, well, line them up. You can do something. Let's get them to eat. So I said, Dixida, scurry, scurry, cushy, cushy. And they're laughing, you know. And every, <laughs> every time they'd see me, they'd always go, stupid doma, babushketa, that's cushy. Go home. Your mother wants to give you something to eat, you know. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> I got a kick out of him. The colonel was so happy I could speak Russian. <laughs> Well, we got across what they wanted to hear. They were going to get something to eat, you know. So anyway, then I don't know where we left them off. And 
couple of German prisoners that we took. We kept a couple of them with us. I'll tell you, they were, they were, uh, they were like American soldiers. I mean, they really switched from one end to the other. They liked being in America with the American soldiers, I think, more than they did with the German soldiers. So, next question. <laughs> so, when did you, your unit, actually end up going to Europe? When did we go to Europe? Did you go on D-Day? Wait, wait a minute. Europe. And we went into England. Yeah, from England to Europe. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, when did we go in the uh, the invasion? In the invasion. Right. Yeah, that was in that was June. Uh, no, when did we We went in there two days after D Day. Yeah, two days after D Day we went. And uh, see, they were they got us in a marshalling area, and then they started dividing us in groups. And uh, as we were in groups there, we had LCIs and LCTs, landing craft infantry and landing craft uh, transport. And uh, they would put us on those, and then we'd cross the channel and end there. And uh, we got there was still pretty pretty bloody there and stuff and that. And we tried to get into St. Lo, and that's when I got wounded trying to get into St. Lo. I had a couple of my men. We were going up with some hand grenades and that to see if we could see anything there. But St. Lo was up on a hill. So uh, uh, two of my men and I were going up there. And I said, you know, we got to be careful now. We're getting pretty close. They must have everything zeroed in here. So I said, we got to get try to get in the range or we can shoot a couple, throw a couple hand grenades up there and <clears throat> see if we get any static. But it uh, seemed like I no sooner said that to him and we started, we said, we better go back a little bit. 